everyone and welcome to the Scotch O'Hay end of the year podcast. Um, I can't believe it's been a year since we did this last. And joined again by Chris Ward. Hello Chris. Hi Thanks for coming back. Yeah, cheers for having me. And also by Wesley Shearer. How you doing? Alright Wesley, thanks for doing this. No, thanks for having me on. It's um, been looking forward to it. Good. Um, we're going to start off with uh, your area of expertise, music. Um, so Wesley, yeah, starting with you, let's talk a little bit about the best stuff from in music, terms of music in 2015? Um, I was actually talking about this with my, uh, a couple of my friends the other day. Um, we went to see Jenny Lee at Stereo and um, they kind of, as it does in December, they kind of chat, goes towards what your favourite releases were. Yeah. The more I was kind of thinking about it, the more I was thinking, I'm not entirely sure if, how great this year's been in music um, because last year I struggled so hard to... Um, to put together a 2014 end of year list. Yeah. Whereas this year, I mean, I struggled last year because there was so much I couldn't fit it all in. Oh, okay. Yeah. Whereas this year, it's kind of, nothing's massively grabbed me, and most of the stuff I kind of really liked, I think, came out at the start of the year. Okay. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, actually, there's so many good albums that came out this year, just none of them have been, you know, really memorable. That album, I think, you know, I'll listen to for the next three, two or three years. Oh, that's interesting. Um, but there's been a lot of really good stuff. Um, Obviously, the biggest one for me in terms of Scottish music, um, I mean, it's a pretty obvious choice, but it has to be Catherine Joseph's album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the Say Award, personally, I, th- I felt that I was a bit gutted at the Twilight Sad, I didn't get nominated for the, for the, the Say Award, but through the, left, the rest that was left in the shortlist, Catherine Joseph's for me was by far the, the best on it. Um, I loved it. I, I, I agree. I think the Catherine Joseph album is the except for me the exceptional one that, that, that came out and the one that I think I will be playing years and years from now. Um, I mean, Chris, you went to the SA. Yeah, I, did. I was there when it happened. I think everybody in the room was totally thrilled for her when it happened and she seemed really overwhelmed, like, you know, uh, by it. And rightly so. I mean, you know, it was a. Uh, you know, it is a great album and she did seem to kind of come from nowhere with it you know it's that way where I think when the shortlist came out probably the majority of people hadn't even heard of it never mind heard the album yeah. itself it seemed like a really surprise inclusion and it just kind of came from nowhere and gained this kind of groundswell of support and it is it's like it's a beautiful beautiful album she's totally mesmerising live as well um, yes, I think it was a, like I thought it was a really strong shortlist this year overall actually like I made up for like, it was the first year that I'd ever actually listened to like all 20 albums on the long list before they made the shortlist and I made, I'd made up my own shortlist before they announced theirs and there was only two albums different I think um, again Twilight's Sad I'd have liked to have been on there um, and I'd have taken out the Bell and Sebastian album I think and probably put in Withered Hand instead mm-hmm. but uh, other than that everything else I mean I think like I love the Captain Joseph album I think the, the other one I'd have been happy to see one would have been Happy Meals yeah that's uh, the two for me there's two I am in agreement I do like the Blue Rose Code album um I just think it's a really fantastically create, you know, crafted record. But those two as well, the Happy Meals album is, is another. And again, some kind of, I mean, how would you describe it? It's it's kind of lo-fi electronic, um, yeah. but quite different to what a lot of. There's a lot of electronic music out at the moment, yeah. I think, in degree. But yeah. that seemed different to that. I think the weird one about the Happy Meals album is no matter what way you describe it to somebody, as soon as they listen to it, it'll, describe, it'll sound entirely different from how you just describe <laughs> That's it. That's right, yeah. It's a, it's a very strange one, it's really hard to pigeonhole, um, which is not a bad thing, of course. No. Um, but I think the point you just said about the Catherine Joseph thing, I mean, for me, I like to think, you know, I'm fairly up to date with the Scottish music and stuff, but that, that short list this year took me by surprise by a lot of stuff on it that I hadn't actually heard of. Yeah. Happy Meals, I was aware of their existence, so mm-hmm. kind of Lucy stuff previously. 
um, but didn't ha- never actually got around to listen to them. Catherine Joseph, I had no idea who she was. Yeah. Um, and that for me, and I, as you said, I think she, she was so humble by the whole thing, like, yeah. about the whole thing, and she's so humble about her entire music. I genuinely don't think she realizes how absolutely amazing she yes. is. <laughs> I, I get that impression as well. I haven't seen her live here, seen how amazing she is live. You, you do get that sense that this is someone that's just. Um, creating this sound that doesn't realise quite the effect that it's having on anyone yeah, who's listening to it. Yeah. Um, I think it was, a, it was a good strong listen actually, but I think it backs up your point Leslie about the, maybe apart from the Bell and Sebastian album, there wasn't you know huge albums coming out this year that maybe there have been recently, but there was like little gems that uh, uh, came along that yeah. surprised you. Yeah, of course and then um, Speaking of another album this year actually, which I thought at the start of the year was going to be on my end of the year list and now is nowhere near it, was the Young Fathers album. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been a fan of Young Fathers for a while and I really liked their output and I really liked this year's album. I thought it was a great album. Um, but I got to the end of the year and I completely forgot that it was even there. Um, and it wasn't until I was just thinking about some stuff for this and I was like, ah yeah, that, that came out this year. I've um, written down the Young Fathers as well yeah. and I wonder if it's because they had kind of hit so big the year before that you kind of almost don't think that that they so did. did I mean the the, e, the, the let's not get into the whole EP that won the Stay Award <laughs> thing but I mean that obviously when that won it that was fantastic great selection followed immediately by another album that had already been released which was exceptional in my opinion and then this one I just thought I mean there's obviously they talked it each time to top it again would have been even more impressive yeah. but I think you know they're matched it in areas but it's, it's not actually stayed with me at all this year. I would, I would kind of agree with you. I, I don't know what you think, Chris. I actually really love the album. I, would, I think I was making up like a top 10 list now, like number four, I think, in my list. I think it's absolutely like, again, like I think like I've loved their earlier stuff as well, but I think the move that they're making towards almost pop with this one is really like, I saw them live for the first time earlier in the year um, at the the big charity gig that Bell and Sebastian put on at the Clyde yeah, Auditorium. Yeah. I'd never seen them before and it's completely the wrong environment to see Young Fathers in because it's basically a theatre. You know, you're sitting, I was up in the circle and, you know, you're far away from the stage and I feel like it would be much better, you know, in a more kind of intimate venue or whatever if you'd stand or you could dance or whatever but I was still so totally blown away by them. Oh, like, like, their so live show was that. absolutely incredible and I think it really kind of opened up the album for me and kind of gave me more of a sense of what they were going for with it and like at the time I described it as like and it's got it's gonna sound derogatory, it doesn't mean to sound derogatory, but like a kind of boy band TV on the radio. Like their live show because <laughs> they all line up, you know, the three of them at the front and you know, they have a drummer behind them and occasionally like G Hastings will you know fiddle about with a computer or whatever. But other than that, they're just they're lined up, they're dancing, they're singing full pelt, they all have great voices and it, like visually it looks like a boy band or something but then obviously the music that's coming out is this kind of primal noisy yeah. you know kind of pop but also really kind of off kilter and yeah a kind of a, like assault of pop you know and um, it really yeah I really love the album they yeah. remind me live of Asian Dub Foundation it's that same yeah, yeah. kind of assault as you say on yeah. there and, and actually almost challenging the, the audience yeah. um, it's interesting because I, I it is a great album I think it is I think maybe, as I say, maybe it was just more familiar and some of the more unusual and different stuff. It sounded like an album from last year to me, which is a weird thing to say, but it's not by any means a bad record. Um, you mentioned briefly, I think, Chris, the Bell and Sebastian album, um, yeah. Girls in Peacetime Want to Dance. Um, disappointing for you? Or? A little bit. I mean, you know, they come around so rarely these days. It's been five years since the last Bell and Sebastian album, and, like, it, I mean, it's... You know, I know you and I both love Bell and Sebastian. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it before in the podcast. Like, long-time fans, I mean, think they've made some of my favourite albums ever. Yeah. But 
every time I listen to this album, I listen to side one and I'm like, actually, you know, I, maybe I've forgotten how much I really like this record. And then I get past the first three tracks and I'm like, oh, no, no, I, I, I read this exactly right. Um, they, they, False memory syndrome. Yeah, exactly. Because I think the first three tracks are really strong. Like Nobody's Empire yeah, stars are really strong. Ali is great. And uh, I really like the party line as well, which is one of their more kind of... I mean, experiment was the wrong word for Bill and Sebastian, but taking them out of their comfort zone a wee bit, you know, trying a new sound for them. And I, I think that one works. There are other tracks on the album where they try stuff like that, and it just does not for me. Like, I know, like, I know there's mixed opinions on it, and some people have been in uh, Inner Sylvia Plath where they go full on kind of Europop, but it didn't really fly for me. There's another one where it sounds almost kind of like. My, my kind of theory behind, theory behind it is that it's kind of inspired by like Stuart Murdoch must have taken a package holiday to Greece in like 1982 or something and he's just trying to corral all those sounds you've got the Euro Disco one you've got one that sounds like kind of traditional Greek plate smashing folk music or something you know um, but I mean there are good things I like the track with Dee Dee from Dum Dum Girls as well um, so there is good stuff on it but overall I wasn't entirely sold on it but yeah. I do think that there's still an amazing live act. I saw them twice this year. I saw them with the, the Scottish Festival Orchestra at the Hydro and weirdly they it felt like they barely used the orchestra. It felt like just a kind of quite gaudy, oh look what we can do now we're at the Hydro, you know, we'll just have an orchestra here and make them sit and listen to us play. Um, <laughs> but they, I mean, here in Dirty Dream Number 2 played with the full orchestra was just absolutely incredible. It was one of the best things I saw live this year and they really played up to this space as well. Like they had t-shirt cannons and backing dancers and stuff, you know, they really went for a full a full kind of arena show thing. And I then, think Stuart uh, Murdoch's always wanted to play yeah, venues. Oh, absolutely. I, don't think yeah, I mean, you see how, <laughs> how much they threw themselves into playing Top of the Pops and stuff. They love all that yeah. kind of thing, you know. Um, the theatre. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. That's it. Um, and then the the charity gig that they did at the, the Clay Auditorium as well. Uh, maybe Top uh, for theatricality because their, their coup de theatre at the very end was they brought out uh, Charlie Burchill and Jim Kerr from Simple Minds and did... Uh, promised you a miracle and don't you forget about me with them wow. uh, which is something I'd never thought we'd ever see <laughs> yeah. happen but, uh, yeah, I was really into it but uh, yeah. it, was, it really worked but uh, it was yeah it was a surprise well, so someone had a bad year actually compared to some of the terrible years that they've had but uh, Bill and Sebastian for you are you a fan? yeah I'm a long time fan of Bill and Sebastian strangely enough I have never ever seen them live which is really bizarre because the amount of bands I've seen live yeah. and for a band that I've listened to for so long I've yeah. never gone around to see them um, I've missed them on a few I've missed them on a few occasions for various reasons and then obviously the opportunity came around to see them in the Hydro and I was like there is absolutely no way the first time I see Bell and Sebastian is going to be standing in the Hydro that is not happening <laughs> um, so I kind of gave that one a miss but um, yeah album was a bit of a disappointment for me too uh, I think it's a good signal for me that I played it maybe two, three times. Not you know exactly and, same. and yeah. that's that condition whereas before Bell and Sebastian oh, yeah. you would get it out every other week. And, and you still do it. Yeah. yeah, and you yeah. still do. In fact that's what it reminds you to do, to go and listen to their earlier stuff. Mm-hmm. Um so I think kind of saying that more established bands maybe didn't release much but there was a lot of good new music that came out. Yeah, I must say that I need to throw in the um Ella Orleans album yeah it's amazing it's so good unbelievable again another one that's completely you know sideswipe me came out of nowhere had no idea about it or even about her mm-hmm. it was um, it's actually Bob from Campfires that, that, that tipped me onto it and wow I mean I, I first listened to it and it really took me by surprise about how great it was and how yeah. haunting it was and how like intimidating it is if I listen and then kind of forgot about it again, listened to it again, and then I saw her supporting um, El Hombre at the uh, St. Luke's uh-huh. um, a couple of weeks ago. 
my God, it's like, I don't know if it, I mean, it might have been down to the six pints I'd had before I'd seen her, but I had the ultimate fear watching her. Like, she, I don't know if anyone's seen her live. I've never seen her live. She no. brings out um, a lot of visuals that she's put together herself, so images from um, photos that she's used, and she's taken, um, you know, kind of black and white footage that she just kind of messed about with on a camera, um, a kind of old style camera. She just kind of pieces it all together. I think the whole album, the whole theme of the album was kind of loosely based around Dante's Inferno. Yeah, that's it, yeah. And, um, oh, honestly, like, I was terrified, but in such a great way. I like to be terrified by music. Yeah, I, and, I agree, I agree. That really terrified the shit out of me. <laughs> so how would you describe the music? Um, chilling. Yeah. It's really, really chilling. It's, um, I don't even know. It just, it, it makes my skin crawl, but in, like, the best possible way. Um, I don't it's electronic stuff largely like she, um, she she's co-producing the album with uh, Howie B who worked with Bjork on uh, oh, yeah, a lot yeah, of her midnight stuff so again probably that kind of general area in terms of sound you know it's synth but it's still largely like singer songwriter based it's not overwhelmed by the electronics or yeah, anything yeah definitely um, uh, and as Wesley was saying like it is kind of it's loosely a concept album based around Dante's Inferno but it's uh, yeah no it's really chilly but then there's still like you know beautiful kind of poppy moments on it like the sky and the ghost you know where the, like the kind of light breaks through a little bit yeah. Um, but yeah she's really something like her, her album I only had one of her albums before this uh, Tumult and Clouds which is like a, a double record and again it's just really ambitious you know it opens with like <laughs> like there's dialogue quoting like Aleister Crowley and stuff like this you know and playing with all the kind of you know magic with a K uh, okay. Kind of stuff, um, but yeah, no, she's she's really fascinating. And I think really like a welcome addition, to, you know, the kind of local scene. Oh, that's um, definitely one to check. Yeah, out. Uh, I think I said earlier there was a lot of good um, electronic music uh, this year by our pop music. Let's let's yeah. call it what it was. A lot of good pop music. I mean, Pride, Pride's came back with an album. I don't know. It was kind of hit and miss, but some good singles off it. Um, but I'm going to talk about White. Um, who I think made some of the most interesting uh, pop music this year. It's very much kind of harking back to, again, maybe early 80s, mid 80s uh, electronica. Um, there's a bit of associates in there, a bit of stuff like that. But um, Leo Condi's voice is just fantastic. I mean, he's been about for a while singing. Um, a band that excites you? Um, a band that. I haven't actually delved enough into right. um, because of the whole, you know, the whole mysteriousness that surrounded them. Um, I've, I mean, I've, I've, no, I've been aware of them since they first, first kind of came about. Yeah. Um, but what I do find fascinating about them is that they're clearly a really well constructed, put together band. There's no denying that they're not. You know, they're not just kind of got together. I mean, also we jam and make some music. They've, they know exactly what they're trying yeah. to achieve, but they're achieving it. They're well, they're achieving it, and also it still sounds great. Yeah. It sounds fantastic from what I've heard so yeah. far. Um, Can't wait to hear the album because the songs that brought it out so far are fantastic. I mean, they're kind of they're kind of tipping towards the edge of you know maybe breaking mainstream, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. And the album will be what kind of decides if they yeah. kind of keep pushing that way. So it'll, it'll be really interesting to hear that. I don't know if you've listened to much. I haven't listened to them much at all. No. no so. Okay. Well, that's my tip for you there to you and check out. Wait. Um, slightly different from that was um, Lyndon's album, um, The Rest and Be Thankful, um, that's Joe McElinden from Superstar back in the, in the 90s and just I think a fantastic singer, he could sing anything. It's more kind of lo-fi and, and, and I mean always verging on the folk in places like that but I mean it's a great record. Um, I don't know. Who was that? Sorry, Lyndon. Um, okay. 
Joe, basically it's Joe McAlinden's okay. man who sang with Superstar yep. uh, back in the day. Um, it's definitely one to check out. Um, now, you mentioned uh, campfires in winter and you manage them. Yes. And I'd love to talk, tell us a little bit about your roster of bands that you have. <laughs> um, yeah, the roster that just appeared out of nowhere and then realised, <laughs> oh, now I have a roster. <laughs> um, no, basically, I've been working with campfires for a number of years and just purely because I was a massive fan of campfires in winter when they were kind of first kicking about, just when Ewan joined the band as a drummer about probably about four years ago. Mm-hmm. And just started working with them, and they were. I kind of wanted to build up some experience of working directly with bands in that kind of management area, and they were happy to have me on board to kind of help them out a little. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of worked really well since then. They built up a little bit of a buzz, but recently um, they've just been stuck away in the studio. Right. Finally recording the album. Is that it's actually recorded? <laughs> it's recorded. Yeah. I, I think every year I've been working with them, it's always like, oh yeah, look out for next year. Like, you're going to come out. Hoax. And then yeah, and then everybody's like, so where's the album? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I haven't recorded it yet, but it's actually recorded now. It's just wait, it's been mixed and everything. It's just waiting to be mastered. I think with bands and you, you probably know this better than me, but sometimes time goes differently. Mm-hmm. You know, the folk are waiting for it. Go, it's been ages since your last release, and you go. It's not at all, there's been no time at all. You never actually want to stop working on it, that's the problem. Like, you never want to let it go uh, and actually finish the thing. Put it out there. I think is a large part of the problem, yeah. It's, it's always, for the creators, it's always much more appealing to be working on an album than it is to be releasing it. <laughs> see, I, can, I can totally see that point of view. That's, I, I've seen that from a lot of people that I know, but interestingly, the, people, the bands I've been working with, so Campfires, Michael Cassidy, and obviously David Lang, um, performs under the name I am David Ling, just in case you didn't know who he was. <laughs> um, they they have all been campfires have been working their album for so long now. Um David's been sitting on songs for years. Yeah. So I kind of helped him put out his first release. Uh-huh. And Michael was album came out in the start of this year. That's right, yep. Um, which actually feels like a lot longer than that. Yeah. Um, but he just sort of he was like, I need to get out there because he'd been working on these songs for four or five years and yeah. um now that they've both got their releases out, they're writing loads just now. Michael's currently in the studio recording. He's recorded quite a few things with his band and he's working a lot more with his band just now. Right. And David's just started writing song after song just now as well. So for them it's been more of a kind of release because they've had the songs for so long and uh-huh. now they've finally got it out there, they can relax. They didn't and, quite know what to do. With yeah, because they had. thought, I shouldn't really be writing more songs, I should be concentrating on this release. And But that's also an interesting point because I know loads of other people who don't want to let the album go. <laughs> yeah. um, they want to just keep a hold of it because it's given them something to, to work on. Um, so. Michael Cassidy's stuff, as you say, was released right at the beginning of the year and uh, featured it in like a January or a February roundup. Um, really interesting music. Yeah. Um, it's not just, it's, well, I think the stuff he released was just him, but the sound is much bigger than that, isn't it? Yeah, of course. And it gets even more interesting with the stuff he's recording because the beauty of him recording now is the fact that he's writing and recording with the band. Whereas before, the, a lot of the stuff on the album that was released, and the album's fantastic, um, it's uh, completely different from what he's kind of going for, the kind of sound he's going for just now. Mm-hmm. But the album was mainly songs he had written years ago, and he then worked with his band to add on, you know, additional instrumentation to, to, the, to the songs and to put the album together. Whereas now they're actually writing together. So yeah. it's a lot more interesting than ideas, it's a lot darker, but still got the complete you know, pop sensibilities all over it that Michael's always kind of had. Yeah. Because he's got a knack for writing a good... Yeah, there's uh, great tunes yeah. in there. So there'll be a lot to, um, to come from him next year. And uh, David Lang, um, as you say, I am David Lang. It's the same thing. I mean, singer, songwriter, great kind of 
melodies that that is um, he was writing. From what I've heard, I've only heard a few mm-hmm. tracks. Um, what's next for him? Then? At the moment, um, he we've not really got much planned at the moment. Uh, I'm just kind of letting him do his thing at the moment. Mm-hmm. He's we're kind of looking at some publishing stuff with uh, some co-writes and some songs he's going to be working with, um, which will keep him busy for a few months and. Um, Maybe from that it'll help him develop some more ideas because he doesn't really know where he's want to go with the band at the moment. Mm-hmm. Still with the band, I mean yeah. he doesn't know what kind of direction he wants yeah. to take the music in. So I think hopefully working with some other songwriters and working on other songs for other people might help him develop his own ideas um, going forward. I think this is a good year for people to come out with the stuff that maybe haven't been around for a while or it's brand new because there is the chance of, of actually getting listened to. Usually Definitely. something comes in and kind of you know wipes everything else uh, out the way. Um, Chris, yourself, yeah. kind of musical highlights for you? Um, it's kind of been a weird year for me musically because this is the first year that um, I've actually ever been in a band. Uh, oh, of course! In my entire life. Like, I played uh, since high school and stuff, but I never actually had like friends who were somewhere really musically inclined or whatever. But yeah, no, as of like April this year, I uh, started playing with uh, former podcast guest Jack James. Uh, yeah, indeed. Had in here. Um, we kind of stayed in touch after the, the podcast and stuff. And um, yeah, he put out a shout saying, does anybody know any, any basis? And we can put a band together. And it was just like, well, I mean, if it comes down to it, if you're absolutely stuck for someone, like I can play. I haven't like played with a band or in or played in a long time. But yeah, no, so uh, we started playing. And, uh, and there was we, an album out. There was an album out, yeah, but I'm not on the album. I can't take any credit for that. But yeah, no, he put out, uh, yeah, a really good, a really solid album. Like, I mean, I, I wouldn't have wouldn't have said yes if I didn't think the album was any good. <laughs> and if he stuck playing songs I didn't like for for the next one, once I've had a polite a polite uh, but firm no. Mustangs um, are bust. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, so we played we played our first gig in June uh, at the Hugging Pint the, about a week after it opened. So that was cool to be like one of the the first gigs in there. Um, and then we uh, supported Pale Fire at King Tut's in in August. Our, our my pals in Pale Fire, who I think uh, featured in kind of music roundups. And yeah, stuff they did. Like, yeah, well. absolutely. Uh, also put out a very good album this year, yeah. the first album. Uh, recorded with Jamie Savage. That was early in the year as well. That's yeah, right. yeah, that was like March or April that came out. It was yeah, I think that's one of the things about doing these lists now. You go and go, yeah. God, that was, remember yeah. that stuff? Um, yeah, they've been playing their album, uh, the, like their album songs for a good three or four years, so it was cool for them to finally actually get like a, a recorded document of it out there. So uh, yeah, they've had a really good year as well. But yeah, no, it's been fun playing the band. We were a four-piece, we're now a three-piece. Right. <laughs> Our keys player uh, is in a couple other bands and he uh, he left a couple of months ago. So uh, yeah, we were, but no, it's been fun to do that. So that's kind of... Um, informed I think a lot of other stuff I've been listening to this year and you know it's you know, from kind of a different perspective from usual but by far and away like my favourite album of the year and I'm taking it beyond Scottish stuff now is mm-hmm. uh, Kendrick Lamar's The yes. Butterfly uh, <laughs> yeah, which is, I get a, yeah, a fist punch from Wesley there in support um, it's, it's an absolute it feels like an absolute landmark it's just the kind of album that I mean, like like Wesley was saying, there's a lot of really good albums this year. And making up a list, like I had a kind of a top three in place, and then everything else beyond that was just well, this could be any order. It's a wide field of other contenders, mm-hmm. but Kendrick is so far out in front. It just feels like there's nobody else out there that can touch him just now. It really feels like for for a variety of reasons. I mean, he's an absolutely incredible rapper. Technically, like is the subjects that he touches on. It's a political album, but it's not in a kind of a hectoring way that, you know, he approaches it as politics first and has a point to make and everything. It's like it comes out of personal stuff and um, just the realities of being like a black man in modern America and having to deal with like police brutality and stuff like that. And 
uh, but it's all filtered through like his own personal experiences and the uh, kind of maybe struggles with depression and stuff like that and kind of personal traumas and there's it's threaded the album's kind of structured as a conversation with Tupac Shakur all the way through which sounds a wee bit silly in, in concept but works really well in execution because you don't really realise who he's talking to you hear little snippets of it all the way through that are built up and built up until finally at the end of the last track Tupac kind of responds through archive audio um, and musically it's like just this incredible meeting place of like jazz and funk and like loads of other kind of you know black American traditions you know uh, and there's guest spots from like George Clinton like Ron Beisley mm. Uh, Thundercat who's you know, like incredible jazz bassist he usually works with Flying Lotus Flying Lotus produces a track on it uh, Pharrell's on there as well like um, it's, you know, like it's absolutely astonishing um, just uh, an absolutely incredible album and one that like from the first minute I heard it I was like this, this, is, you, this is your record this is absolutely there's nothing else can possibly touch this this year uh, yeah now, like an event as well and know. that's really interesting what you just said about how the first minute you listened to it it grabbed you because I was exactly the same immediately I loved it so much but I know a lot of people found it a really difficult listen yeah. a lot of people who have now have also came round to it mm-hmm. and really really like it but they found it quite a challenging listen yeah. but I understand that I mean, after Good Kids yeah. that's it, it's it's weird that there's such definite albums but there, it's also a really good companion piece to Good Kid because Good Kid is all about him you know where he was from and the, the new album is all kind of dealing with him the kind of inner turmoil over becoming a little bit more famous now yeah. and the depression and the kind of other social uh, issues and some anxiety issues and stuff um, but immediately it, it just struck me as an an absolute gem of an album and it's not a word I throw about often but it yeah. is a proper masterpiece yeah. it's an album that in decades to come people are going to look back and go but remember that album yeah it's phenomenal it's one that like it's so fully like the anticipation was huge for it as well because Good Kid Mad City was such a total like attention grabbing like this look I'm here now I've arrived this is like grabbing you by the collars kind of thing um, then he like there was his verse on um, Control by Big Sean which just completely annihilated all of his competitors it was basically like it was like not like Nas doing Ether or like Jay-Z doing Takeover or something like this you know it was just totally like setting the gauntlet down and it was like right see all yous fuck yous <laughs> <laughs> I'm running the game now kind of thing um, and then yeah so anticipation was huge I remember like the day it came out like I sprinted up from, from like from work I go off work at half five sprinted up from like the squinty bridge to fop at the top of Byers Road in time for fop closing at six to grab a copy of the album to get home like made it up in like under like in about 25 minutes uh, totally worth it totally worth the worth breathlessness the worth the breathless, <laughs> breathlessness of the sweat uh, the breathlessness and the sweat came later actually listening to the album was like holy shit this is amazing um, but yeah no absolutely absolutely jaw dropping like far and away uh, album of the year although that said like the other two I said like I had a fixed top three and, yeah. and there were like just kind of everything else the other two um, Meow Meow put in my favourite I mean I'm wearing a t-shirt so that's kind of feel really nerdy saying it now but uh, yeah Meow Meow put in my favourite Scottish album of the year and one of my favourite albums of the year full it's stop very, again very good. just continues to develop as like just an amazing pop songwriter you know his grasp of melody is kind of I don't I don't really think there's many people certainly in Scotland just now more generally just worldwide I think they can rival him for it you know he just writes immaculately crafted pop songs in that summer which I say was this summer in particular there was lots of great kind of song electronic pop music and I think Mir Mir's album was probably the best out of all yeah, yes, by far um, yeah. 
yeah, just I, and I finally saw him live for the first time last Saturday as well, and it was great. It really reminded me of like you know it felt like it filled a void that LCD sound system had left. You know, just like a great electronic live show with live instrumentation and stuff, and just yeah, yeah, just absolutely bowled over by him. The other one uh, for me, I think it was a pretty good year for maybe bands. I know we were talking about being kind of disappointed by Bell and Sebastian, but generally speaking, it was a pretty good year for bands whose most recent albums may have been a wee bit disappointing or mm-hmm. in a wee bit of a slump coming back quite strong like I thought Lowe put out their best album in years this year Craig Finn from The Hold Steady put out a really good solo album that was better than anything The Hold Steady have done in about seven or eight years um, really was it a because yeah, I didn't take return. any notice of it because yeah. you know they yeah. are disappointed yeah. Yeah. it was a return to some kind of form but yeah no, the best the biggest return to form album for me this year was uh, Bjork Volnikura, uh, which is her uh, divorce album, <laughs> uh, so it's it's not again it's not an easy listen, uh, and it's the kind of thing that like putting together playlists, end of year playlists or whatever, you can't really pick out a single track from it. It's an entire experience, you know. And if you look at the liner notes, she chronicles each song is marked with like where it sits on the timeline. So the first few are like the four months before breakup or whatever, and it counts down, and then it's like you know ground zero of the breakup, and then afterwards it's like how many months after the breakup it happens. Um, but yeah, I think easily her best album since Medulla, maybe her best album since Vesper Team. Like, um, really, absolutely. Vesper Team was the last one that I really kind of loved. Yeah, um, like so. Yeah, definitely her best album in at least a decade. It's absolutely it's one of those ones you're like, oh right, this is why I love Bjork. Okay. You know, just really, really staggering. Um, Wesley, what else were you listening to this year? Um, do you know the the Bjork one's a funny one actually because it, I, this is one I was thinking about the other night when I was having a conversation with a few mates and it made me realise how much I actually hate the type of music listener I've become and the reason <laughs> being was because the Bjork album I'm a big Bjork fan always have been and the Bjork album I uh, was anticipating for a while you know reading every review under the sun not the review sorry interview and feature yeah. about about the album about her breakup about the divorce about um, the producer she was working with and then the album got leaked so she obviously I was like I'm not going to download the leaked version because mm-hmm. it's going to sound horrible and the CD came out and I thought I'll wait a few months and buy it on, on vinyl when it's the official release comes out because I think yeah. the vinyl was held back for a few yeah. months until the official release and uh, during that time obviously it wasn't Spotify mm-hmm. I had become so addicted to Spotify <laughs> that I actually not even listened to the Bjork album mm-hmm. by the time it came around the vinyl release came around I'd actually forgotten that it had been released because it had actually been released three months prior yeah. Yeah. So this wasn't until like two weeks ago I discovered that I hadn't actually listened to it yet so I listened to it one run through the other week and it's nowhere near enough times to listen to it to yeah. actually form yeah. any proper opinion on it but it did instantly strike me as um, a lot better on the last album for start yeah. Um, but yeah that just kind of that kind of bugged me about how I kind of just relied on, on Spotify to if it's not on Spotify I'm not going to listen to it yet because usually I'll listen to it on Spotify then go and purchase the vinyl that's yeah. usually the way I work unless it's something that I've been anticipating for a few months yeah. on the day it comes out but in terms of other albums um, hip hop's kind of like been a weird one for me this year um, there's not been masses you know massive amounts of great hip hop albums I mean I think I've never been a big fan of Drake. I've kind of warmed to him. Yeah, I'm not a huge Drake. Yeah, I've kind of him in previous years, and I quite like the mixtape he put out this year. Mm-hmm. But by all means, when you strip it apart, it's pretty terrible. It's it's good. It's good kind of you know Drake by numbers, and I kind of enjoyed that. But I was kind of disappointed. But the one that really really grabbed me was um, Vince Staples' album, right? Which is called Summertime 06. Uh, I presume you've probably heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I loved that. I thought it was fantastic. It's got. Uh, uh, Jenny Echo features on it as well which who I've 
really really liked um, my girlfriend got me into her I'd never really knew much about her mm-hmm. and yeah just kind of most of my favourite albums this year have, apart from like Meow Meow and stuff we yeah. were talking about earlier has been albums that have just kind of came from artists I've never heard of and the way you listen to music I think is interesting the way that changes the way you buy music or, or, or all of that kind of stuff I know Chris you're a big fan of vinyl yeah I don't but really, you know without kind of remortgaging the house yeah. how do you decide what you're going to I kind to? of just limit what I buy I find like limiting your intake as well the other thing like I mean in theory like something like Spotify is great because you have unlimited choice you can just listen to stuff whatever but then I find like the converse of that or the kind of the, the other side of that is that like if something doesn't grab you right away then there's not really any impulse to stay with it because you've got such unlimited options in front of you that you can you just move on to something next. else and I kind of quite like the idea still of like like I don't really use Spotify anymore I still have it installed on my computer but like I haven't I never like actually just sit and listen to something through my computer you know so I still try and go out and just buy even CDs not just vinyl you know because um, one because of the whole like actually compensating the artist kind of thing there's still kind of questions with Spotify over how much you know artists are actually getting paid off yeah, of that yeah, yeah. but uh, besides that just the idea of like right I've put money down for this so I'm going to try and make it a worthwhile investment I'm going to spend time with it I'm going to get my money's worth out of this album if I'm spending like 15-20 quid on a piece of vinyl I'm not just going to play it once and that's yeah. it you know I'm actually going to spend time with it see what it's doing try and figure it out and try and get more out of it than just nah it's not for me right away you know that's um, so, yeah it's so, so true I mean Spotify the, like I still buy a lot of vinyl I mean mm-hmm. I'm probably average about I don't know Four, four new vinyl releases a month maybe um, like not including obviously vinyl that I buy second hand yeah, or other yeah, types yeah, of vinyl yeah, um, or you know uh, well there's a bit of music coming on <laughs> 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 I was just talking about Spotify and I was trying to go to because we made a Spotify list ah, okay. and now, you're now listening to it uh, Live, I'm just gonna shut that off. Exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> Exclusive. That was the Duke Detroit with ironic. It's a great single when it came out this year. What I was gonna say, uh, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for that interruption, <laughs> is that um, it is great for putting together um, playlists. Oh, totally. And, yeah. and that we're doing it, and it's because you, you know you can use that. Oh, that's interesting, and I might like that. But going back to what you were saying about buying, fo- you know, so yeah. you're kind of limiting your purposes. Yeah, so as the well. point Chris makes is exactly what what I what I do myself, and it's a really good point because. If I buy, if I don't buy the vinyl of the album, I need to listen to it like twelve times to even get song titles in my head, let alone mm-hmm. the actual concept of the album. Because I'm listening to it while doing other things. If I buy, buy the vinyl, I stick, I, I open it up and I stick it in the record player, and I sit there and listen to it from start to finish while clutching the actual yeah. case, you know. And I'm, yeah. I'm looking at it and I'm, I'm reading it, and I will put it on again maybe, and I'll, I'll maybe look up some stuff online about it to, to kind of you know piece it all together and. Um, form my own opinions over it when I stick it on the Spotify I, I just I'm halfway through the album and the amount of times I've had to skip back to the start of an album before because I've not actually listened to it properly so it's actually kind of destroying the way I listen to music as much as it's actually helping it in so many ways because yeah. I mean I couldn't love it without Spotify now yeah. everywhere I go it, my headphones are plugged in and Spotify is running pretty much um, so I mean but from someone who uh, is involved in bands now how do you view it because as Chris was saying there's all questions about how much an app gets paid through Spotify. Do you, you look at it as something that is there to advertise people's work? Yeah, or, yeah? yeah, definitely. I mean, um, as somebody who's just kind of working on more, I suppose, the business side of bands, I mean, a lot of bands don't want to, you know, imagine their music as a product or anything, but at the end of the day, it is. And Spotify is a means of getting the music out there for people to access because I know so many I mean, even if I didn't entirely agree with the whole model, 
not having your music on Spotify when you're trying to get noticed I feel is a bit counterproductive yeah. the amount of people who I know who would instantly just search on Spotify the way they used to search on MySpace yeah. for a band to listen to their music yeah. and then that band doesn't turn up and they'll just go <laughs> Well, it's I true. I mean, that's it, sad, but it's, it's true. It is true. I mean, when we were trying to, as I say, we've got the Scots Way Best of 2015, and the idea behind that is putting on some tracks that we've featured in the roundups every month, and sometimes you can't, the person's not on, and well, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and it is a shame. Yeah. Because but it feels like a necessary thing. You say you don't listen to it, so how do you listen to music? When just, without vinyl and buying it, just uh, I I quite often like blind buy stuff. You know, like I hear like I'll read reviews still, and I'll I'll see like recommendations like in you know in record shops like Monorail usually have like an album of the month, a couple albums of the month because they have like a Monorail album of the month and an Optimal album of the month, and yeah, just kind of like word of mouth and stuff like that. But I'm still quite keen of buying an album and having no idea what it sounds mm-hmm. like and being completely blindsided by it. And obviously, it doesn't happen every time. But like, this certainly it happens enough that like I'm still comfortable doing it. And I mean, if that means I hear fewer albums a year, then so be it. You yeah, know, it means if it means yeah, exactly. Like time is limited. You know, um, so if that means I hear like fifty albums a year rather than a hundred, a hundred and fifty or whatever, then fine. You know, I because I, I feel like. I'm getting more out of those 50 or I'm spending more time putting in work to get more out of those 50 than I would be if I was you know trying to hear as much as possible you know um, so I, it's reaching that point of being comfortable with you know it's the, the whole kind of fear of missing out kind of thing it's like reaching a point where you kind of make your peace with it and reconcile with it and you're like look there's just too much good stuff for me to ever hear all of it um, I'm just going to focus on this stuff and that's fine and there's probably other great stuff out there that I'd like, but there's just not enough time. There's not enough hours in the day. Yeah, uh, I think uh, the other thing that seems to be coming back is um, the box sets and you know the way that people purchase something that seems to be a special thing. Not just I have to say box sets from people before, but the way that people are promoting their um, CDs. I think uh, Catherine Joseph's one came with various. Came with like a newspaper inside. That, that's yeah. right, and there, um, there was a couple. I can't remember the one. Fa- Father John Misty's was something that's not so good about his album being. Like he tried to go a bit wacky with yeah. it, and he pressed it like the packaging was so heavy they had to, they had to recall it or something. Yeah, it was, some it was, sort it of was story destroying the record. Yeah, it was something yeah. destroying the record. <laughs> so it was almost that kind of Blue Monday cover. Being yeah, more expensive <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but that's that's the way you have to do it. Now you have to think, how else can I sell this? Product, How can I stand product out to, to stand out to people that go, oh, well, I want to spend that money rather than just go, because there's a reason people don't buy CDs, and it's not. There's obviously the argument between vinyl being different from CDs, and I, I agree with that, and I prefer vinyl, and I would I don't purchase CDs at all now yeah. unless it's a band, an up and coming band I'm trying to support, and that's yeah. what I've got. Yeah. But um, the difference between a CD and a vinyl now, for if you bring out a borderline basic vinyl mm-hmm. to people who aren't vinyl enthusiasts or who really buy vinyl and they don't want to buy the CD, they're not going to buy the vinyl either. Yeah, so yeah, you need to yeah. introduce the vinyl in a certain way that makes people who don't necessarily always buy vinyl go, do you know what, I might actually just buy that this one time because, mm-hmm. as you say, it comes with some sort of inner packaging or, like, I, I just bought the um, Run The Jewels album from last year, I finally yeah, purchased that on vinyl, yeah. and it came with a poster and it came yeah. with um, stickers. stickers and it came with some other stuff. And I now have the, the fist and the gun on my base. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Aye, so it's things like that that, you know, you need to think, how can I package this and deliver it in a way that will make people want to, to buy it? And I think the people that have got that spot on is Mogwai. Yeah. Mogwai have done that perfectly and they've been continuing. They've been doing that before people even realise that yeah. you have to package things in different ways. 
whether you like the stuff they're selling or not. I mean, right back to when the um, did they not bring out like oh, what song was it? Um, they brought out a sort of like music box for one of their songs. Oh yeah. Um, years and years and years ago, and then then they've also done the whiskey, and then they brought out Central Belters this year, which is a beautiful, beautiful box set. Yeah. Even just down to the simplicity of the fact that it's got an M O G W A I on all of the the sleeves. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, um, well, moving away from, from records and, and the kind of product like that, live stuff, um, my favourite live album, my live uh, performance, I think, was probably right at the beginning of the year, um, and it was actually a kind of evening of Craig Armstrong stuff at, right. at Celtic Connections. I, mean, I loved Craig Armstrong's music anyway, but that he had special guests, and it was just one of those nights that you just kind of don't forget. Um, but I also went to see Billy Bragg recently, and he was like, phenomenally good. Oh. Um, but yourself, where's the live stuff? Um, live, I would actually kind of take a couple of notes because I was looking through because we were, as we were discussing earlier, my memory's pretty bad. Um, I've started like, the past couple of years, every time I go and see a band, even if it's a band I've not heard of, the support band, whatever, I'll write them down, add them to my notes on my phone, add them to the back of my, my book, and I can remember everyone that I've seen. The ones that stood out for me this year though were um, Sleater Kinney, which was just something I never thought I'd ever see ever. I've been a fan of Sleater Kinney. Since since the woods came out, so mm-hmm. two thousand and six, two thousand and five, I think it was. Um, it was the year after that I first got into Sleater Kinney when I was just a wee teenager, and um, they totally blew my mind. Yeah. So getting to see them live this year was. I'm not going to lie, there was a couple of tears. Yeah, dream come um, true. Yeah, my girlfriend was a bit terrified <laughs> um, of me just being turned into a pure. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was, they were absolutely astonishing. They just blew me away. They, it was as if they'd never been away. That's great because often, you know, when that happens, that can be a disappointing yeah. thing. You know, but like I can't, I still, I still can't get my head around how like competent they were as a, a live band. But they were, uh, yeah, it was, they, they left me speechless. It was fantastic. Um, apart from that, I think um, go back to Mobile again. I saw Mobile at the Roundhouse this year down in London. Great venue, amazing live show, um, they finished with My Father, My King, which yeah. I've heard people describe as the Mogwai song to end all Mogwai songs, <laughs> so it was a perfect fit for that. Um, also, I got to see Grace Jones this year. Yeah, I've seen Grace Jones live before. That was That's amazing. <laughs> That's she, I mean, she literally played, she was 40 minutes late, she played four songs, <laughs> didn't even play uh, Bumper, uh-huh. and every, I mean, it was, it was at the, uh, the Paolo and Tini gig right. um, at the Elveston Park. Um, it was pissing down the rain. The loads of people were all just like standing about, going, "Great case, who? Yeah. She, she, she was not. Oh, she was not. She had a Bond film. <laughs> she, so, she's a she singer. did. She got in the bed with Roger Moore. Yeah, no yeah. one should have to do yeah, that. Yeah, all your other ones going. Oh yeah, she just get. She just gets like a rest out a lot, doesn't she? And you're kind of like, yeah, but she's got great songs. Oh, and then some of the best. She came out, literally played four songs. And the bewilderment on the faces of the majority of the crowd, I think, was equally as good as she was. Just everybody just going, what is going on? <laughs> um, and then she worked at the Hill Hoop, and it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. So that was like, you from this? Not I have to say, one of the, my, the greatest gigs I've ever been to was Grace Jones at the Battlelands a few years ago, oh, or, or quite a few years ago now. But yeah, as you say, just like, what is this? It's like someone come from another planet and to visit us. Exactly, and then just this smile across my face from start to finish, just like, this is ridiculous, but <laughs> in the best possible way. Um, and the only really other couple of ones that kind of really stood out for me was Matt DeMarco at ABC, 
um, was amazing. It was also amazing because it was full of kids, mm-hmm. which I did not expect at all. Right. Yeah, my brother was there, who's like 19. Yeah, like, yeah. There's like people even younger than that yeah. as well. It was like 16 year olds there, like loads of 16 year olds. Uh, he was great. He did a Metallica cover as well, which I didn't expect. <laughs> um, and the war on drugs at Dusher Hall was spectacular, one of my favourite venues in Scotland, yeah, yeah, so yeah, that was okay. a kind of really fitting place for it. Um, FFS at the Barrowlands was a lot of fun. I bet it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll bring my girlfriend into this again because I tend to drive her to a lot of gigs. Um, I drive her to that one and she just thought the album was just completely batshit and she just didn't understand it at all, which is fair enough. Yeah. I mean, if you don't like Sparks or Get Sparks, you're not going to like FFS. No. But she was like, that was great, she really enjoyed it, even though she didn't really like the music. It was just so much fun. I thought the thing with the whole FFS project was that everyone was just having the time of their life. They were just like, you know what, this is, we get each other, as you say, we get each other. If someone else gets it, that's great. If not, we're just going to have a great time. Um, Chris, yourself, live, Uh, apart, of course, from Jack James. Of course, apart from that, which was obviously a gig (laughs) of the year. Um, No, uh, I had a kind of a similar experience to Wesley and Slater Kinney, where uh, I made the pilgrimage down to the Roundhouse in London to see the replacements, which uh, is, you know, it might have come up a couple of times on on the podcast before, uh, are one of my all time favourite bands. I've named both a radio show and the podcast after songs of theirs. (laughs) I'm a total replacements fanboy and they reformed a couple of years ago uh, played some gigs in America and we weren't sure if they were ever going to come over here and they finally they announced I think two London shows early in the year so like, I had to make the trip down for it and it was it was amazing I mean there's only two original members left there's only Paul Westerberg and Tommy Stinson who are left um, the Chris Mars didn't want to participate and Bob Stinson is dead so <laughs> you know fair play <laughs> it's as good as you can fair, fair play <laughs> um, but yeah no it was great it was that way we're like it was a great replacement show because it wasn't perfect. You know, that's like you wouldn't want the replacement to play no perfect and be completely, you know, ever do everything you'd want to hear. There was the standard kind of wind the crowd up a bit, playing obscure covers. Like they went at the end of, um, was it the end of Bastards of Young? At the end of one of the songs, anyway, I think it was Bastards of Young because I think it was during the really kind of noisy coda, they uh, kind of went into a cover of My Boy Lollipop <laughs> and then went back into making a racket. Um, and yeah, just covers and just kind of fucking about and general, like clearly being pished for the majority <laughs> of it. Um, but yeah, it was just incredible. I mean, they finished with Alex Chilton and then it was just like, again, what you're saying, like tears streaming down the face, like, oh my God, this is finally <laughs> happening. It was, it was, uh, it was unreal. I bet you're um, not the only person in the audience. I know, I think there are more than a few, more than a few people. Um, other than that, I uh, again we've talked about Bell and Sebastian and Young Fathers and Young. Yeah. Now, um, one of the best uh, early in the year, one of the best gigs that I saw this year actually was Nana Cherry, uh, SWG three. Uh, she brought out a cracking album last year uh, called Blank Project with a group, uh, Rocket Number Nine, who are two brothers, um, one drums and one plays synth, and the album was produced by Fortet. Mm-hmm. Um, and the live show was Nana Cherry and Rocket Number Nine, and uh, they basically just played stuff off that album, which is which you find is a cracking album. The only older song of hers that they played during the main set was uh, Manchild, um, and it was you know super energetic. Set. You know she's amazing. She's a grandmother now. She's in her fifties, and uh, I know, but still absolutely amazing, magnetic stage presence, and you know really you know, youthful energy offer, and the, like the, the band are great. But the really special thing was the encore, which was a version of Buffalo Stance, which stretched past the eleven minute mark. Um, just kind of these rising waves of synths and you know drums and uh, yeah it was absolutely absolutely knockout although it did feel like a line in the sand because 
um, I mentioned my, I've got a young brother who's 19 and he was at Francois and the Atlas Mountains that night mm-hmm. and who I also love and would have liked to have seen but he was there with one of his pals and I realised uh, four songs from the end of the set of Nana Cherry set that I was standing next to his pal's mum Ah, so, it's like oh well so some of the uh, line has been crossed here where <laughs> the teenagers are out of the arches having a, uh, having a great time and I'm here with you know their, their mum uh, so actually yeah. talking about gigs that make you cry the most yeah. surreal experience I've had probably this year in many years was uh, my brother um, is a, has always been a massive big country fan and he lives up in Braemar small village up in Braemar and uh Big Country came to play at the Braemar Festival and his band got to support them. So he was on stage before Big Country came on and then stepped off stage and as close as I am to you because we stood there, the two of us, singing everything and Big Country played right in our faces. So loud, it was a tent. So loud that the ears were ringing for days and days afterwards. But yeah, that was, that was probably the most mad live music experience of the year. Yeah, um, other than that, I think, um, I think it's a Flying Lotus this year, who again, I've also talked about on the pod, there's been like, I think that there's been a couple of years where we've had favourite album of the mm-hmm. year has been Flying Lotus, um, which was, it was a really cool visual show. I mean, he's a, he's a DJ, an electronic musician, so, I mean, there's not really a lot he can, he's standing behind like a computer and sense for most of it by himself. So he had like a kind of a, it was a 3D screen thing in front of him, so he was standing between two screens, one of which came out as a kind of prism shape, and there's stuff projected on it, so it kind of looked 3D, like the visuals kind of looked 3D. And it was cool, it felt a bit kind of shock and awe for the first half, but maybe about halfway through, he brought out Thundercat, like the bassist, and um, who was just the total virtuoso, and that's when it really kind of kicked in high gear. It was just because I don't think anybody was expecting Thundercat to be there. Um, so that was a really cool night um, and uh, I'm trying to think what else Viola Tango so again this year another one of my favourite bands um, they did a kind of an, an acoustic show they brought out another kind of quieter album this year um, stuff like that there which is kind of largely acoustic covers and uh, yeah the show was largely acoustic um, but they did break out a total like eyeball searing guitar solo on a cover of Bottled Up by Devo which was <laughs> oh, uh, the highlight of the night I think uh, for all of us it was, it was cracking um, I just want to mention Catherine Joseph's night at the CCA uh, which was supported I think by Finn Lamarinel and that was a beautiful night of music um, and if you do we said it earlier on but if you do get the chance to see Catherine Joseph live you should really jump at it um, I realise this is the only music I've been going for <laughs> so I think we will oh I just as well wanted to mention an album which has just come out which is the Deadline Shakes uh, Zealous and um, I think that might be up for Scottish Album of the Year next year. It's a great record. It's a really nicely crafted pop record. Um, but we'll take a break just now and recharge our batteries. I'll be back with you soon to talk about probably some Scottish books and others. Cheers. <laughs> We are back for this part two of uh, the Scotch Way Roundup of the Year, and we've just about done music, I think. Thoroughly <laughs> done music. 
So we're going to move on to uh, books. Um, Chris, what have you been reading this year? Uh, oh, I, again, as I feel like I have to put a proviso like every time we do one of these, is I'm terrible at keeping up with contemporary stuff because I feel like I've just got shelves groaning with unread <laughs> stuff. So actually trying classics. to... Classics. Like, yeah, well, exactly. Classics, but also just stuff that I've bought in previous years and haven't got around it yet. So the only book I've actually read that was published this year is uh, one that you gave me, actually. You gave me for my birthday. It's In the All Night Cafe by Stuart David. Uh, his memoir of the, the very early days of Bell and Sebastian. Yeah. Uh, which is, yeah, really, really enjoyable read it's only like it's slightly about 200 pages long so it's an easy read to get through like in a couple of sittings but it's uh yeah really like fascinating some stuff like i i learned some things i didn't know about the early days of bell and sebastian I think I think for any bell and sebastian fan but also for anyone who's actually in the music business or is looking to bring yeah. bands it's a really interesting read partly because you know, you either have been in a band and you go, well, how did that happen to you? Because <laughs> it happens so quickly and almost yeah. by accident. And, yeah. you know, people meet people and this sparks things off. But you also have this driving force that is Stuart Murder, yeah. definitely, who, you know, is just determined to, to, yeah. to succeed. I mean, there's some great, it's, I mean, I'm sure it'll be like a nostalgia trip for a lot of people. There's a lot of, like, you know, descriptions of Glasgow in the mid to late 90s and, you know, the kind of, the this kind of pre-internet time of music fandom of just trying to find, like, like-minded people and, like, the way that he started, like, that he meets Karn uh, and yeah. he's kind of, like, trying to, you know, they correspond by letter and stuff like that and then eventually... And by letter! I know. <laughs> um, but it's also just... Details about you know the early Bell and Sebastian music. My favorite thing that like I, re- I think I read in any book this year was in this, which is that um, the version of the Electronic Renaissance that's on Tiger Milk was taped off the radio. Like the actual the version that's on the album, like right. Stuart Murdoch had. Yeah, they'd recorded it and uh, they sent it to radio stations and it got played out on the radio and Stuart Murdoch taped it off the radio and liked the way that the compressors that the radio station put on it made it sound so much that that's the version that's on the album and you're like you're reading you're like what <laughs> what why have I never noticed this and then go back and listen and you're like holy shit like it's, it's right there you know it's, it's that kind of lo-fi sound that it's got and you can hear a bit of tape hiss and stuff so like that it sounds like, pretty obvious when you go back yeah when you go back it's the kind of thing you'd never have noticed or never even thought like you know to even consider like listening to the first time round that that's how they managed to get that sound so yeah, it's full of stuff like that so it obviously Hardly recommend it to anyone who is a yeah. Bell Sebastian fan. Um, I feel like <laughs> anyone who isn't a Bell Sebastian fan will probably have stopped listening to this podcast already because <laughs> we've talked about them so much. Even though we're all like, yeah, the album was quite disappointing this year. They've still been, they've still taken up a lot of chat today. Um, you see, but well, the best thing I read, I think overall this year, um, again, not Scottish, I'm not <laughs> published this year, so I don't know how many people will be interested in hearing about this. I finally read uh, The Master and Margarita, oh, oh, oh. which is absolutely jaw dropping. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, again, it's something that a book I've been meaning to get around to for years and years, I think, like, first heard it mentioned maybe about a decade ago, and, you know, um, like, bought a copy, and it's just, as I say, been sitting on my bookshelf, kind of staring me out since then, but uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, jaw dropping is that kind of again is that way of handling politics where it's clearly drawn from the personal and something a bit more imaginative than just a hectoring kind of lecture you know finger wagging kind of thing to um, to kind of structure this take on on Soviet Russia and like Stalinism and stuff mm-hmm. like that with with this kind of with the devil literally appearing in Moscow yep. and you know performing as a black magician and stuff like that and you know being accompanied by a massive cat and you know all the kind of stuff that happens and this whole the whole opening set piece of like. Um, the the guy's death being foretold and then it happened in the most kind of Rube Goldberg you know like elaborate way where you know someone drops oil of oil and he slips on it and then is decapitated by a tram and stuff like that you know it's just really 
Um, like it, it really, really darkly funny, but also really romantic and really kind of just like yeah, just like a joy to read, really imaginative. Kind of remind me in some ways of like Alistair Gray as well, you know, that kind of thing of that kind of taking the cityscape and you know, making it seem slightly unreal and slightly Still, fantastical yeah. and where, you know, it, it's a venue for where stuff like this can happen without, you know, a second thought, you know, it's just part of the fabric. Yeah, you don't want to say magic realism because it, it feels a little bit more bleak than, yeah, you know, that, you know a lot of magic realism. Black magic realism. Yeah, black magic realism, <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, no, that, that was absolutely the best thing I read this year. Conversely, uh, I think the most disappointing thing I read this year, again, not Scottish, not published this year, so I'll keep it brief because I don't know how interested people will be in just, oh, here's my reading log for this year. <laughs> um, I, don't know, I feel like we've maybe talked about uh, Nick Kent on the podcast before. I, I know think we've we have certainly talked, talked about, about, off the podcast yeah, about, about how much we both love the dark stuff, which yeah. is the the anthology of his, his writing for the NME, his profiles of like Miles Davis and the Pogues and Morrissey and Elvis Costello and Brian Wilson. You know these great, great magazine articles from the seventies and eighties and nineties. Um, I, a friend actually loaned me a copy of his autobiography this year his memoir of his time in the 70s uh, called Apathy for the Devil which is you know chronicling how he started yeah. writing at the NME and yeah, cre- uh, Cream and all these other kind of you know music magazines in the 70s uh, whilst maintaining a heroin habit and you yeah. know uh, going on tour with the Rolling Stones and stuff like that you know there's the famous passage in, in the dark stuff where he slaps Keith Richards out of a heroin overdose um and it was like for me it was a case of like never meet your idols kind of thing because he just came off like such a tit and it was like he was so self-aggrandizing and so kind of like you know always he writes very well about other people I yeah think he absolutely. doesn't write so well about himself no really like no sense of perspective no you know no real self-analysis or no idea like what well, he might have been in the wrong in these situations or that anybody would want to pay attention to say like Keith Richards rather than him or anything like that you know it just they really it was that way where like there's still moments in it where you're like well it's kind of what you know of him hanging out with Iggy Pop and just in London in the 70s and just sitting watching TV I think Iggy Pop sits and watches Stepford and Son at one point which is you know it's, it's almost worth reading the rest of it or suffering through the rest of it just for that kind of image but um, yeah he, he was one of these uh, for what of a better term kind of gonzo music journalists in the 70s and, and, and 80s who thought they were you know as good as the bands and wanted to do as many drugs and do that, have as many groupies and all that kind of stuff and actually you don't want to hear about the music you don't particularly want to hear about that because it's quite dull in the end Wesley yeah. um, you've been reading <clears throat> um, very much like Chris in that everything I kind of read is not usually from that year because my cupboard is just overflowing of not even just books that I haven't gone to reading yet, books that I've like read a quarter of. Yeah. And I've put down to read another book and then I put that down to read the next book and then go back to the first book again. And I'm really, really bad for it. I think I've just been I've been so busy over the past couple of years with some stuff that I've just mm-hmm. never really got round to actually sitting and reading a book. And sometimes when I sit down with a book I kinda of feel guilty that should I should be doing something, something else, else. Which is weird because I've love reading and yeah. I always have done. Um, but the only thing I've read this year that's been um, published this year not the only thing I've read this year, sorry. Yeah. The only thing I've read that's been published this year yes. was Amy Poehler's biography. Oh, yeah. yeah. I hear yes, very please, good. which was fantastic. Um, I've already, like, gave it to my 17-year-old sister and, like, told her, read that book. Because <laughs> I feel like, kind of, you know, not to tell women what they should be doing, but I feel like for a kind of young, kind of teenage girl, it's a, a really good book that she should be reading. Uh, she should be reading. Not because the book's only written for teenage girls, but there's lots of, kind of, you know, she kind of deals with a lot of issues about being kind of, you know, 
an outcast at times and how to deal with shitty guys yeah just guys being shit in general and, and is it as funny as she it's hilarious it's absolutely great she's just such a natural writer and in contrast to that I read I uh, also read Tina Fey's book mm-hmm. off the back of reading Amy, po- Amy Poehler's book this year Bossy Pants which yeah. I think came out a couple of couple years ago years, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and I was really disappointed by it after reading Amy Poehler's mm-hmm. book I think I would have loved it had I, hadn't I not read Amy Poehler's but um, Tina Fey felt like and I love Tina Fey I think she's fantastic but her style of writing for the book felt like she was trying to shoehorn in jokes left right and centre and um, she was kind of writing to be funny whereas yeah. Amy Poehler's book felt so naturally written there was lots of little bits in it as well that were just kind of like I really liked them. there was a really nice touch in the book it was like she was talking about how she sat down with her mother and asked um, or how you know you remember the story of my birth mm-hmm. and after that chapter there was a page of like three blank pages where it says now you go and sit down and ask your mother about <laughs> your birth and write the story down here which that's I thought that's, that's lovely that's, that that's a good. great idea it's yeah. things like that that you don't take the time out to actually get to know stories about you yourself know, yourself through yeah. other people um, and I really 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 enjoyed it but contrary to that um, I know a couple of people who have read both books and said that they preferred Tina Fey's because they feel like Amy Poehler's goes too much into the whole SNL chat right um, and she, she does name drop a lot of people who even people I've never even heard of before yeah. but I really 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 thoroughly enjoyed it um, yeah, and I've, I've, that's been recommended to me a, a few times. There was actually quite a few good uh, music books came out this year. Probably the opposite of Nick Kent, I would say, is Mark Ellen, um, who also wrote for NME, kind of founded Smash Hits and all of these things. And he did Rockstar Stole My Life, which is a very kind of wry and funny look about his life being a rock journalist. And he's very aware how stupid it is yeah. of what he does is and, and how it, it's kind of bookended by. Um, he goes on seven nights with a Rihanna right. around the world and they go to a different city and it's the various folk have been invited to fly on a 707 of course uh, around these places and the st- I won't explain it because it goes on for far too long but just the madness he's this middle-aged man kind of looking at all this madness that is going on and thinking you know how the hell did I get here after you know watching Chickeny Tip and Glastonbury back in the 70s or stuff but that's a, that's an excellent book Viv, Viv Albert talking about books which can be kind of guides for, for people Viv Albertine's book um, came out paperback this year and that's a fantastic read it's um, boys, 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 close, 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 music, 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 all that in a certain order. Yeah. I can't remember now off the top of my head. Um, an autobiography that came out this year, which was surprising, um, was Ronnie Brown's autobiography, Corys. and that's Fay the Corries. I was sent a copy to review and kind of went, oh, I don't know what this is going to be like. And particularly the opening uh, few chapters when he's talking about his young life, exactly that kind of thing are fantastically written and written with no kind of artifice just like here's my memories today almost and down and it's a great read and it actually led to I think one of my favourite uh, days of the year which was, was our podcast wasn't it fantastic it was surreal absolutely surreal but it was brilliant as well like and he was such a warm guy 
and just uh, he invited Ian and I into his home over in Edinburgh way to record the podcast and he really did invite us in Aye. and we were there for hours and we could have only recorded about an hours off the podcast but we could have recorded the whole thing because the stories and the stuff and <laughs> I have never Aye. laughed so hard no, at really <laughs> really, really some of his gags uh, we did a lot of good podcasts this year actually which we can maybe talk about a little bit later but that I think was one of my highlights uh, getting great. to meet him yeah. and his book is genuinely good I do recommend it um, oh gosh, who else is? Oh, Alan Warner. Uh, you know the Thirty Three and a Third series, yeah, yeah, the little yeah, books yeah. about albums. They're all about different albums. Well, he wrote one about Tegel Mago, the Can wow. album. Okay. I'll, I'll lend you. Uh, it's a uh, that's not to everyone listening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a uh, shame video for this to see Ali. I just forgot we were recording yeah. there for a minute. But um, it's it, I mean he's obviously a great writer yeah. and he's a massive Can fan and yeah it's. They can be quite hit and miss, but when they really hit, they are really, really good. There's a good yeah. one on Hatful of Hall, for instance, and stuff like that. That's a great one. Um, I will briefly go through some of the Scottish books, I think, that were worth talking about um, this year in terms of novels. Um, one which won the not the Booker Prize and which a, um, a lot of people were talking about was Kirsten Innes' Fishnet. And something like five years in the in the writing, it eventually came out this year, um, and luckily got the the attention it deserved. Written about the sex industry, not an easy thing to do, um, but thoroughly researched, which makes it sound a bit dry. It's not. There's a great story in it as well, but um, a, a really fantastic read, and I'm really pleased that it's kind of reaching uh, a further readership. And um, we did a, a podcast with her as well. Um, also, our uh, ex-podcast guest, this is going to sound like very much like our, our friends, uh, but uh, Karen Campbell and Danielle, uh, the book out, um, Rise, uh, which is uh, definitely worth getting a hold of. It kind of references a lot of Scottish novels from the past and, and uh, Stevenson and Hogg and things like that, and uh, she's excellent. I should have mentioned music books, um, Detroit 67 by Stuart Cosgrove. Um, most people know Stuart Cosgrove is doing his you know, football show off the ball and give us a call yeah, give us a call and off the ball and all that stuff he is a soul music super fan I mean he just is so encyclopedic about it and he wrote this book Detroit 67 which is basically the year that changed soul it's called and um, it's about Motown at that time at that place and everything that was going on around it and it includes Vietnam and it touches on the decline of the car industry but basically it touches on the madness that was going on at uh, Motown at the time and if you're interested in music it's a great read really great read I'm really looking forward to I know he said at the end of that um, interview that he's, he's working on a, a similar account of Northern Soul um, okay. in, in Britain I'm really looking forward to, to that he's yeah. a massive Northern Soul fan yeah, as well I'm, 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 can't wait. I hope it gets here soon. <laughs> we, could, we could maybe try and talk to him about that and see if we can have a look at his record collection because I think uh, it takes up a whole room. That'd be dangerous. We'd need a week. Put it, put it back, Ian. Yeah, put it yeah back. exactly. Um, Doug Johnson um, released probably his best book in Jump, which is, I mean, these are all saying they're really cheery books, concerns suicide, but uh, it's a, if you know John, Doug Johnson stuff, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, book, probably one of his best. And Saraban books have an imprint called Contraband, as you may know by now, and that's basically their crime imprint, but to call it crime is too limiting. It's, 
you know, the, the difference between Graham K. Burnett's His Bloody Project and Graham Laroni's O Marina Girl are, are hugely different and kind of some, uh, show off how different the kind of books that they put out are. Um, I'll finish the book chat by talking about Andrew Raymond Drennan's The Limits of the World, um, which again took years and years to write. Set in uh, now, which is the bad Korea? North, North Korea. Korea. <laughs> <laughs> you think your memory's bad? bad <laughs> which Korea. one's the bad That's Korea? That's an awful lot of awful stuff to forget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, I knew that really. It's set in North Korea. Um, it really makes you ask questions about how far you would go to listen to a piece of music, to read a book. To I mean, because there is the chance that you will end up um, dead. I mean, ultimately, if you are caught reading the wrong thing in this place, and um, it's it's a fantastic novel um, which um, deserves to reach a, a wider readership. Um, yeah, so I think I've mentioned. If you want to know more about Scottish books, you know they've got the website. To start <laughs> um, I think now is the perfect time for our missive from Doctor Books himself, Ronnie Young. <laughs> And this is something that Wesley might be going, what the hell is this? Um, but every uh, year, a, a good friend, Ronnie Young, sends us a wee straight out of Falkirk missive about his year in 2015 and, uh, and usually pokes us with sticks while doing it. So here we go. Season's greetings to all you dashing podmen in Scots Way. Once again, I'm prevented from joining you by a massive prior appointment every time. <laughs> so you forgive my absence and note that the following reflections were written under the effects of a raging previous engagement. I also have a headache for some reason. So, 2015. What the hell? Only this week, professional troll Donald Trump was banned from Scotland or something, and parts of the nation appeared to be sinking. I should really read this before <laughs> I start this, but here we go. Food banks at home, refugee crisis abroad, and the world on the verge of catastrophic climate change. Is there anything to look forward to in the coming days, weeks, and months? Merry Christmas, Ronnie. Very good. <laughs> well, at least it's been a good year for books. Last year, we reflected on the film adaptation of Under the Skin by Michael Faber. This year, Faber deservedly won the Saltire Book of the Year Award for The Book of Strange New Things. A novel at once disturbing yet uplifting, alien yet familiar. It adapts Conrad's Heart of Darkness to an age in which missionaries explore other planets and the Earth itself faces environmental collapse. Janice Galloway returned with the publication of Jellyfish, a favourite of Ali's, I understand. That means I'm obviously banging on about how much I love Jellyfish too much. There are many more books you find gents will no doubt wish to mention, but I would like to pause here and pay tribute to author and poet William McIlvanny, who passed away last week at the age of 79. Listeners of Scotch Hay will know of Willie from his many works, including his popular Laidlaw novels, and I'm sure you gents have your own memories of the great man. I once met him at an event in Irvine Burns Club where he displayed his charismatic warmth, wit and charm. Scottish literature will feel the loss of such a fine talent. That's absolutely true, actually. I wrote a, a piece on him myself, and if you ever got to meet William McIlvanny, I was lucky enough to do it. He's an absolute gentleman. As a period um, for reflection, you'll recall our time spent at Glasgow University watching Scottish films at the Friday screening organised by your fine self. So I should say that's me, Chris, and Ronnie used to, we used to put films on on a Friday at Glasgow Uni. 
It's good to see some of our favourites getting a screening at the moment in the Scotland Galore season at the Film House in Edinburgh, which I didn't know about, including Whiskey Galore, Brigadoon and Bill Forsyth's Local Hero. The season, which runs until the 4th of January, also includes adaptations of some of the texts we used to teach and study together. This is a real trip down memory lane, I'll be teary myself in a minute. That includes Achieve the Stag in the Black Black Oil and The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, with its iconic performance by Maggie Smith. As if you hadn't already guessed where I was heading with this whole we used to teach it, but look, it's also a film angle. Sunset Song is in the cinema at the moment as well. Starring Agnes Dean as Chris Guthrie and Peter Mullen as her father, Terence Davis' adaptation finally brings Lewis Grassic Gibbon's lament for a crofting community torn apart by war to the big screen. One to see over the Christmas holidays, maybe alongside that Space Wars thing. <laughs> finally, and this is the plug I was talking about earlier, finally since we're approaching the time for seeing an old lang sign, a shameless plug for a new free online course we're launching in January, Robert Burns' Poems, Songs and Legacy on Future Learn. Topically, the course includes the articles on the making of Old Lang Syne, a song rewritten by Burns for an age in which families and friends increasingly found themselves in different parts of the world. Old Lang Syne gained its modern association with the festive period via the Guy Lombardo Band, who, from the 1920s onwards, made it a standard part of the New Year repertoire, also used after the dropping of the ball in Times Square. This association has been also been fuelled by numerous references in film and cover versions by recording artists as the verse as Bing Crosby, Duke Ellington, The Beach Boys, Jimi Hendrix, Rod Stewart, Mariah Carey and Sufjan Stevens. The course reflects on such things, along with the international celebrity of Burns and works including Scots Wahey, of all things. Look for it on Future Learn and on Facebook and Twitter via the hashtag FLRobertBurns. Beautifully done, Rory. <laughs> so, and on that note, I'll bid you gents a very happy new year. Lang me your lums reek as lums tend to do, Ronnie. So one of Ronnie's highlights of 2015 was Old Lang Syne. Basically, Old Lang Syne and a, a, yeah, various other bits and pieces that he's been promoting with us. I didn't know that's how it would become. But anyway, Sunset Song's a great place to start and yeah. finish because I know you and I have both been to see the film yes. and we haven't spoken about we it haven't. yet. So I'm quite no. excited to see what you're going to say about it, Chris. Uh, yeah, no, I thought it was really done beautifully. Yay, I mean, I, uh, that's the right answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, I mean, I, I really like Terence Davies a lot as a director anyway. Uh, I'm a really big fan. I thought uh, his last film, Deep Blue Sea, was maybe a career high point for him. It was just staggeringly beautiful uh, kind of wartime romance with Rachel Weisz and Tom Hiddleston. Just really, like, just swooningly gorgeous film. Um, so I obviously was massively excited when I heard that it was him who had got his hands on Sunset Song. It's like, oh, thank God. At least it's not going to be some kind of, like, hack by the numbers standard adaptation and that said like I think it is a very respectful adaptation of the book obviously there's differences here and there but I think it really captures the spirit quite well it was to the point I actually had quite a hard time separating how much of my reaction to it was the film itself and how much was just kind of the inherent power of the book because obviously the book for certainly for the two of us having you know done Scottish literature mm. at, at uni and stuff it's it's so ingrained and it's so familiar yeah. um and it's kind of hard to separate out, as I say, how much of the power of the film comes because it sticks to like the like a lot of the dialogues lifted wholesale from yeah. the book. Um, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, large chunks of it anyway, and uh, and the narration and what have you. And I think like 
yeah so I had kind of a hard time gauging how much of my reaction was, was to what part of it but I think like it's really done like I mean there's some kind of staggering moments in it just technically like there's the, the 360 pan where um like where like, kind of the, the, the horse and car drives away yeah. in one minute then it pans around and you see like the house and Chris and then it comes back and the horse is coming back in the other direction yeah. Um, and yeah I know there's some really beautiful ones I think Agnes Dean is great in it I think she really carries it wonderfully it's a really difficult role particularly for someone who's not necessarily no, that well known as an actress yet yeah. you know she's, she's obviously more known film called The Electricity I've seen yeah. that's about it yeah I uh, really did great I think Peter Mullen as usual is just it's, it's unfair to put other actors on screen with him because he's so there is uh, a few read yeah, some sort of songs. Do you know what? I haven't actually read it. Um, I had scheduled in to go and see it um, a few days ago and I couldn't make the screen. Actually, uh, I had tickets but didn't go. The reason I ask is because a lot of people were taught it at school. Yeah. I was taught it at school and didn't like it, but then I, I was anything I was taught at school I wasn't yeah. particularly fond of, and then went back to it later on and absolutely loved it. Um, the book that uh, is and everything that Chris is saying is absolutely right I just want to say there's a, there's a bit where Peter Mullen has a stroke and he refuses help to get up from Chris and he for, and it's the most astonishing bit of acting I can think I've seen yeah. in years isn't it? I mean it's unbelievable you, you've just got to go and see it but yeah, it's absolutely believable that here's a man kind of you know struggling yeah. to, to kind of uh, keep his dignity and, and keep this strength that he's had I mean it's a, it's, I wrote that it's one of the most memorable kind of film monsters that you've seen in some yeah. time and he is it's a monster yeah, absolutely it? yeah um, it was a weird moment for me though just sitting there in the audience hearing him through the shut door going Chris Chris <laughs> Chris like shouting you're going to have like, nightmares no, now no Peter oh. Mullen's coming for me um, we're going to have to get that put that on his phone as he's uh, ready to <laughs> <right. laughs> yeah, but um, no I mean I thought I, yeah I thought it was just really well done all around uh, what actually reminded me of seeing I don't know if it's just the fact that it's right there in front of you now but actually I, I think this is probably a conscious thing on Terence Davies' part as well given his, his love of cinema generally kind of made me think of Gone with the Wind a little bit you know mm. this whole thing about the land persisting there's you know there's a woman left working the land in a kind of a patriarchal society and stuff and mm. having to you know go against societal norms and make sacrifices and lose her family around her and kind of come to terms with you know war the encroachment of war there's a lot of it so basically kind of a less racist Gone with the Wind um, <laughs> frankly um, but What's yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, yeah, no, really, really beautiful, really, really well done, really swimmingly romantic, and uh, yeah, really powerful as well. I think yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it is almost at times like a painting. There's a scene yeah. where um, they're all in front of the fire, all the women are in front of the fire, and it could be hanging in the Scottish, you know, National Gallery. It's so beautiful, and that's what he does in his films. He just makes these incredible scenes, and he's not afraid to let the camera linger for yeah. longer than a lot of people would, would normally think they would like, get on with it yeah there were times where it reminded me as much of like you know your kind of classic art house there like Dreher and stuff like that as well again you know suffering women at the centre you know the way obviously Dreher's like passionate Joan of Arc and stuff like that and, and oh the Bill and Douglas and trilogy Art yeah. Bill Douglas trilogy yeah absolutely um, yeah no just, just I, I was really happy with how it turned out because it was one that you're like again from two camps both as a Terence Davies fan and as a, a fan of the books is that way well this could if this if any part of this doesn't work it's going to feel like a personal affront you know? <laughs> but, I think a lot of people shared that point yeah. of view and a lot of people wouldn't have seen it yet for that very reason yeah. and I've been trying to say to them no no you've got to go and see this it's not going to affect how you think of the book yeah. um, 
and particularly I think when it was now when Agnes Dean was cast in it yeah. and at the time it was probably best known as being a you know, yeah. supermodel um, I'm pretty sure Terence Davis didn't know that that's yeah. what she was I, but she has to carry this film and the, you know the camera's on her face a lot of the time and you know she just, it's, she, it's a perfect bit of casting and a perfect piece of acting and I think directing because I think yeah. he probably tells her just do nothing yeah and that's sometimes you know in a film that's quite rare where for a lot of them just, just stay where you are and do nothing yeah and, uh, um, yeah one of the, uh, the my films of the year I thought it was terrific yeah um, another great film that came out this year which, which would have been my favourite Scottish film of the year was Slow West oh yeah yeah I know, I Slow West well. is a film directed by an ex-member of the Beta Band yeah. John McLean oh okay I don't yeah, um, and it's got Fassbender in it, Michael Fassbender mm-hmm. in it, and it's got Cody Smith McPhee. Oh, very good. Yeah, I was actually thinking yeah. of the guy who was in East, uh, Neighbours years and years ago, the Australian actor. Oh, oh, Guy Pierce. No, no, is he in it? No, I feel like he's in most westerns. Yeah, I'll, yeah. you talk. Have you seen it? I have seen it. I, no, you I, talk I about remember. it, and I'll find okay. out who it is. It was, um, yeah, so Cody McPhee is the the guy from he was Viggo Mortensen's son in The Road, the adaptation. Uh, yeah, of the road. Okay. he's now a little bit older. He's in his late teens, and he plays uh, uh, obviously a teenager who uh, follows his uh, beloved. Uh, her and her family emigrate to America, and he chases them across seas in search of goes in search of them. He comes from Scotland to America, and it's a kind of a slightly surreal kind of tragic comic western like you know traces of like dead man Jim Jarmusch kind of yeah, thing in it and um, of just him uh, kind of trying to make his way west to find his lost love and, and her father who is played by uh, Rory McCann who is the hound in Game of Thrones I think I don't watch Game of Thrones but I'm led to believe that's who he played yeah that's well it was, it was yeah. Rory was in it um Okay, and, you go. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's good. It's funny. There's a couple of moments where I like a couple of sight gags that I kind of rolled my eyes at a little bit. Um, like the literal salt in the wind was was. But I think that's the literal, sense of humour. Yeah. I think that you know, I've seen beta band videos which yeah. he also produced yeah, them, so directed yeah. them. Uh, I think that's his sense of humour. Rory McCann is it? You're right, and yeah. he was the wolf in Game of Thrones. He's also the Scotch Polly Jones man years and years ago. If you went to an ink, um, Ben Mendelsohn was the guy. I was of thinking. course, yeah, Ben Mendelsohn. Ben, ben Mendelsohn in Neighbours. Yeah, he was. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. Well, that's <laughs> yeah, I love Ben Mendelsohn as an actor, but yeah, yeah I had um, no idea he was in Neighbours. Every Australian actor has been in Neighbours at some point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's got a fantastic fur coat in this. Really uh, yeah. Very McCabe and Mrs. Miller. You know, yeah, exactly. Well, there's lots of kind of nods to westerns. Um, the stuff set in Ireland is 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 quite dark and interesting as well. The kind of central character uh, of the uh, Jay Cavendish, the Cody um, Smith McPhee character, is a real innocent abroad. Yeah. You know, he kind of loses the girl that he loves and says, "Right, I'm just going to go to America to find her because you know that'll be easy." Um, and there's an innocence about the whole film, I think, in the direction of it as well. I know what you mean, that it can be a bit literal and a bit, you know, that, that would never happen. But yeah. it's, I mean, it's almost magical realism in places. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, talking of which, another film I wanted to talk about was The Legend of Barney Thompson. Didn't see it. No? No. Okay, well, <laughs> that was uh, Robert Carlyle's um, debut, uh, directing debut, I should yeah. say. And had Emma Thompson, it's his mum, in an amazing role. Um, it's I watched it a couple of times now, 
and it's a lot better than you think it is even when you're watching it um, it's it shows off parts of Glasgow that you don't normally see there's a great bit shot in Shawfield Stadium and a lot of it shot in uh, Bridgeton and that kind of surrounding area that's where the barber shop is in Bridgeton um, and there are really odd surreal moments in it it's a bit where he's cutting Alex Pettifer's hair and the hair just keeps coming away and coming away and coming away but there's no reference to it and there's lots of little really odd things like that and just very you know um, I don't want to spoil it but you know it's about um, kind of serial killers in Glasgow and Barney Thompson's the kind of main uh, suspect for it but uh, it's out now on DVD and it'll eventually be out really cheap or on somewhere and I would recommend watching it it's good and, and I think Carlyle will be a good director it's got Ray Winston in a, it's, it's actually a really odd film Ray Winston in a really odd role who is a cop who hates Glasgow it's based on a book which came out a few years ago which um, Freight Publishing republished to go out with the film obviously he's a Cockney cop obviously. he's a Cockney oh yeah, yeah it's a Cockney who hates Glasgow <laughs> and he's sequestered to Glasgow and uh, we'll say this out loud you know when folk, what did you say pal um, yeah and Emma Thompson is, it's worth seeing her character as the kind of foul mouthed mum um, who's almost unrecognisable uh, and, and Carlyle kind of almost takes a back seat and lets everyone else go a bit nuts and, and he kind of works his way through it I do recommend seeing it Chris so films this year uh, I think it have was we got time to talk about this now um, I think it was a really good year for uh, for Hollywood actually like the Hollywood okay. like big studios had a really good year all around a lot of my favourite films this year were big studio productions which is increasingly a rarity but some really interesting weird even progressive stuff coming out of Hollywood my favourite absolute favourite film of the year uh, is Inherent Vice uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's awesome so yeah Paul Thomas Anderson's adaptation of uh, Thomas Pynchon's one of Thomas Pynchon's more recent novels is again Pynchon one of these guys who I think a lot of people would probably think would be unadaptable to the screen um, but obviously Paul Thomas Anderson being who he is throws himself wholeheartedly at it um, takes a lot of dialogue again directly from the book and just kind of lets it happen and it's I think it's really interesting to me because I find like the last few years my interest in plot in films has just decreased like right. watching it like, like it, I increasingly watch films for like mood tone you know acting character you know like things other than mm-hmm. the actual narrative itself and Inherent Vice is fascinating for me for that because it's such a plot heavy film but at the same time the plot does not matter one bit like you can you can try and pay attention to the plot and keep up with this labyrinthine conspiracy theory as it unfolds around like Joaquin Phoenix who is just the befuddled centre of it all but the, the whole point of it is you're just as clueless as he is as he like makes his way through it in this kind of fog of weed smoke and you know just in uh, it's good to see Wacken Phoenix kind of back on form as well I think yeah. he's an excellent actor and really good kind of lost whether it was deliberate or not lost his way for a few for yeah um, excellent cast I mean he's great in it I mean Wacken Phoenix is usually pretty spectacular especially you know again working with Paul Thomas Anderson I mean The Master is absolutely incredible it's one of my favourite films of the decade so far um also, uh, like a really deep support cast in this, like Martin Short has a very memorable one or two scene cameo. Uh, Owen Wilson's in it. Uh, Jenna Malone. Uh, um, 
Josh Brolin is incredible in it, absolutely scene stealing. Uh, Benicio del Toro um, is you know, a really strong cast all around, and uh, I've seen it three times now, I think, and it's just it's one of those films that you know, you get more out of every time you return to it. Like visually, a knockout again, filmed on thirty five mil, filmed on actual film rather than digital, and uh, yeah, no, it's really heartily recommended. It's probably not for everyone but um, well I've heard some people hate it yeah uh, a lot of people I think there were a lot of walkouts on its initial cinema release there was a whole I think there was a whole really? article in the Guardian about why it's okay to hate inherent vice it's like oh fuck Ooh. you <laughs> <laughs> so in the comments outraged the party but no again like, it's, it's absolutely worth your time um, other, other big studio stuff this year I think uh, the consensus is probably uh, firmly behind Mad Max Fury Road yeah, 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 which yeah, uh, I have not heard anybody dislike no, at all it's, like, I mean, they, that's real people talk about a roller coaster ride yeah. in a movie but that was just breathtaking it's absolutely it's, it's insane that's the main <laughs> thing to say about it it's yeah. absolutely it's unreal that that film A got financed and B was as popular as it was because it's fucking nuts like just every detail about it is just it, it just keeps piling them up yeah. you know from like the, the guitarist yeah, yeah, from, from, from <laughs> the flame shooter behind him to like the, the character designs to like just everything that happens in that film like just to like the, the war boys spray painting chrome over their mouths you know just all these incidental details that aren't really given much exposition or you know they just happen and they're thrown at you and you have to deal with them and you know there's no time to you know stop and think about what's happening it just moves at this breakneck pace it's like you know, very casually feminist as well. You know, because the focus is as much it's on Charlie Stone as it is on Hardy. Oh, yeah. yeah, you don't think it's, it's going to be smart at all. No, you just hear Mad Mad Max Fury Road, and you're like, "Well, yeah. this is going to be shit," <laughs> and it entirely wasn't. Yeah, it's like the first Mad Max film in thirty years, and you think, oh, you just think <laughs> it's going to be another like useless revival, like you know, quotation marks gritty reboot or something yeah. like this, like a long dormant franchise and it's just absolutely breathtaking. Like it's just as a piece of I was really worried about it because the, the first two well the set of the first Mad Max film was incredible. But then you forget there was Thunder Dome yeah, Thunder <laughs> you Dome. know not but, as bad as people make it. Okay, fair enough. But I was yeah. I was concerned with the length yeah. of time and, and you know, all that stuff but yeah, I was absolutely blown away. Man. Yeah, it works really well. Just a, it's one of those films that like you could almost just jump the dialogue completely, and it would work just as a piece of like silent cinema or visual storytelling because so much, yeah. of it, so much of the information is just is there on screen for you. As Max Hardless is a thing. That's it. <laughs> He's barely. I mean, it's called Mad Max Fury Road, but as I said, it's, it's really like Furiosa's film, yeah, Charlize yeah, Theron's yeah. film. She's really the central She's great. part of it. She's amazing in it. Really amazing. Um, so is that uh, another? Action film I love from this year, John Wick. Uh, ah, your wandering thing with absolutely. Keanu. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it was a perfect Keanu Reeves film because they, they know exactly how to use him. Uh, it's a couple of first time directors who are former stuntmen, so they know how to shoot an action scene as well. They know how to hold a shot, to not cut it to ribbons to let you see what's actually happening. Choreography is great, it's incredibly stylish. It knows it's quite silly, it's quite self aware, it has a strong sense of humour, and uh, it has some of the best. Like, I mean, if it's it's misfortune to come out in the same year as Fury Road. Over yeah. I think it came out last year in America, but if it wasn't for Fury Road, it is would there be another actor who has had such highs and such lows? <laughs> yeah, there is. This really is. It's a real uh, roller coaster ride thing. He did. Um, did you not do Eli Roth yeah. film this year? He did. No, no. I haven't seen it. I've heard it's not great. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not an Eli Roth fan generally. So. But the premise is that two girls turn up at his door and then basically start to torture him as they do in any yeah. Eli Roth movies. 
and you just think, can I? Why? No, no. <laughs> I don't mean the money that much, but you know, I suppose at a time yeah. when uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's appearing with meerkats and things, yeah, yeah, yeah. can't chuff them too take much. Take where you can find it. Um, uh, the other, the other big studio release this year that I really wanted to go about for, and uh, bear with me on this one, Magic Mike XXL. Um, okay. Which the first one is very good as well. I it's like, like the first, first one, one directed by Steven Soderbergh, ostensibly about male strippers, secretly about the economy, okay. as a lot of late period Steven Soderbergh films are. This one uh, taken over by Gregory Jacobs, who is Steven Soderbergh's regular assistant director. Uh, Soderbergh still shoots it as cinematographer, and he edited it as well. And it's the most fun film. It's just like the most positive, like good vibes, like kind of like casually progressive like body positive sex positive not into shaming anyone for anything they're into and it, you know it's just it treats its audience with respect it's, incre- it's an incredible piece of cinema just in how it's composed and how it's put together on a technical level the way it looks okay. like the, the choreography that goes in it and it's just a really fun hangout film as well and it's just it's all feels so casual and not calculated in any way you know it just is it feels like a real anom- anomaly in kind of current Hollywood um, and yeah I can hardly recommend it even if you know seeing Chang Tatum gyrating with the show <laughs> isn't, isn't your thing necessarily okay, so yeah. you bring up something which surprises us I know, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, on a more kind of smaller scale uh, thing like independent releases and that uh, World of Tomorrow which is the latest film from Don Hertzfeld who made It's Such a Beautiful Day which I think I talked about a couple yeah, of years ago yeah, yeah. in podcast well, It's Such a Beautiful Day is one of these totally life-changing films that you see and think I should really go hug up all of my family right now. Um, <laughs> World Tomorrow is a 20-minute short film in which uh, a little girl called Emily is visited by her future self uh, through like a kind of time portal and she's showing the world of the future and obviously as a five-year-old is kind of unable to comprehend it. Uh, I think it was recorded in a similar way how they got the little girl's dialogue in Monsters, Inc., where Don Hirschfeld basically hung out with his niece for the day and recorded her just saying random gibberish and then incorporated it, built the script around it um, and it's again like there's so much there's so many ideas in it there's so much emotion packed in it so many kind of you know existential crises packed into this 20 minutes it's where like there's a lot to get out of it it's more densely layered than I think a lot of feature films are out this year um, the other one that I will put a shout in for it well another, another two because I realise that time is against this um, <laughs> Mistress America which is Noah Baumbach's second film of the year oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well we're young which is, which is fine uh, but Mistress America was great modern day screwball with Greta Gerwig at the centre of it uh, Force of Nature absolutely yeah like Tour of the Force comic performance at the middle of it um, I'm in the minority and not having been a massive fan of Francis Ha mm-hmm. um, but this really sorted all my problems with Francis Ha and I think it was uh, just a perfect comic showcase for Gerwig and is like probably the hardest I laughed in a cinema this year There's so Do you think that's because the lead character more... I think like they. I think it's more of an at, like it's more like the attitude towards the lead character and Frances High was like I feel like her behaviour is largely insufferable and nobody is pointing this out in the film at all. Yeah, I think the problem with Frances High is I love Frances High, but the problem is you don't feel like you're laughing with her a lot of the time either. Yeah. Which, as as a piece of filmmaking, I think it's actually fantastic, and mm-hmm. I really really enjoy a lot of the. I like the kind of angles they're taking with it and what they're kind of trying to touch upon but my biggest problem with it was that you felt like you were laughing at her mm-hmm. yeah. and you shouldn't be yeah I think that's right um, um, I haven't seen Miss Mistress America yeah there's more of a I think there's more of a kind of a critical distance where it's like you know you can see the kind of the allure of her lifestyle but at the same time you can see the pretension and the kind of the, the way that she's 
still like hitting 30 mm-hmm. and she still hasn't sorted her life out in her life it had very close to home I turned 29 this year and there's a whole like kind of oh right well maybe there's some some time here for some critical reflection or something <laughs> like that or some space here um, that and uh, latterly just within the past month uh, Todd Haynes' Carol which is oh, absolutely jaw-droppingly beautiful um, the story of a kind of forbidden romance in, yeah. in the 50s between Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara Kate Blanchett being a kind of an upper middle class a housewife going through a protracted divorce and uh, really more great fur coats yeah more that's the theme of the year everyone looks sharp as fucking Carol um, <laughs> and Rooney Mara is um, a shop girl and they meet at the toy counter in a department mm-hmm. store and things kind of develop from there uh, my new favourite Christmas film set over Christmas Carol there you go it's set over, <laughs> set over the kind of Christmas New Year period uh, so it looks appropriately gorgeous yeah. with you know snowy backdrops and furry coats and all yeah his films really, do tend to yeah really a lot of emotion it's not like I know he's kind of covered somewhere ground far from heaven before but that's more about like a pastiche of like you know Douglas yeah, Sirk melodramas and stuff and this feels like it doesn't feel as studied as far from yeah. heaven it does it just feels more kind of organic and natural but yeah wonderful excellent Wesley films yourself yes you that's a very good um, actually very good place to kind of end for me to begin because Carol was my favourite film of the year yeah uh, um, until when did I see it two days ago maybe and mm-hmm. um, I mean, I expected it to be fantastic anyway. Yeah, I mean, sure. But uh, the direction of Todd Haynes is unbelievable. I mean, down to every little... I mean, even there was even a scene where they were they were driving towards, you know, Carol was in a car and they were driving towards out, somewhere out of the city and the camera pans from the front seat and looks out the window and just focuses as if he's lent the camera on the window and you can just see the landscape passing by even down to subtle differences like from there's a there's a beautiful shot at the end what I found was quite funny at the start actually was that the probably the fifth cast member listed was Carrie Brownstein mm-hmm. Carrie Brownstein was literally in it for about 27 seconds yeah not even 30 I was going to say 30 I don't even think she's even yeah. in it for 30 that's seconds that's it it's like uh, the, the, what I said about it was it's kind of like if you said to somebody oh did you know Sigourney Weaver's in Annie Hall yeah like she's yeah, just yeah, yeah. there across the street you know kind of like in yeah. the distance gets like you know it's not yeah but the, but one of the just like even down to the the, the shot they used for when Carrie Brownstein I think first appears when she looks across the room yeah um, and then there is a uh, what's a uh, I forgot T- uh, Therese yeah yeah Therese, Therese sorry yeah. the Mara's character um, the, her and Carrie Rensky's character are speaking and there's a shot of the camera from outside of the building yeah. and it's not even shot inside the building mm-hmm. the, the two are standing at either end of the windows and they're just having a conversation for like 10 seconds it's stunning it's yeah. so well made yeah. it's fantastic it it's um, it doesn't play up to it being I've heard people describe it as a lesbian love story it's not a lesbian love story it's a love story yeah yeah like it's a love story they're lesbians but yeah. it's just a love story yeah and it doesn't play up to the whole I mean so so many other directors could have taken that in such a bad direction yeah they could have taken the book which I've only I've only read half of the book mm-hmm. actually um, they could have taken the book and turned it into some sort of you know oh here's a big Hollywood film about you know two women who are in love with each yeah, other but yeah. it wasn't it was and I I know people who have had problems with it they've said that they didn't believe in the um, in the love between the two of them and I think I was listening to I can't remember what I was listening to it was probably Kermode and Mayo's podcast mm-hmm. the other day or something but somebody made a really good point where they said that the reason you can't buy into the love as much is because you're not used to seeing the female gaze mm-hmm. because everybody's so used it's to seeing the male, the male gaze, gaze. Yeah, yeah absolutely and that's the, a good point but I thought that the subtlety of the whole film just I totally bought into the love story yeah. I thought it was fantastic yeah. 
Um, and I think it's been a really, really, really important year for female lead roles. And the other one for me was, if you'd say to me at the start of the year that my two favourite films of the year would be two female-led period romantic dramas, I'd be like, fuck off. <laughs> that is not the case at all. But um, Brooklyn. Ah, oh, right. I haven't seen that either. I haven't seen I've heard like nothing but good things about Brooklyn. Brooklyn from, I mean, every single little detail down to the, to the costume design and um, just the, the layout of the, the streets when she goes back home and um, just the subtleties of, of things like people trying to convince her to stay. Um, obviously, it's based on, on, mm. on the, the writing of the, the book and stuff, but um, the kind of nuances of... There's, there's points where you think it's going to turn into some sort of, you know, oh, I miss home... Because I've never read the book at all. Mm. I think it's, it's based on a book, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Tom Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, and I've never read that, but there's points in it where you think, oh, it's going to just be one of those... I really miss home and I really miss my family but actually it's a kind of you know big fuck you to people that kind of try and force you know staying at home and not exploring the world yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. such an expansive and beautiful movie and every single like little kind of touch that's been put into the film is amazing and I really 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 hope Sasha Ronan wins the Oscar for it she, she is won't. an incredible actress I don't think she will um, yeah. she like the her whole role is far too understated I yeah. think to, to win an Oscar I, th- I think Kate Blanchett's probably up there for winning it. I don't know if Kate Blanchett will win two Oscars in a mm. row. I don't think, I was thinking about this earlier, and I think the only pe- person to ever done that was maybe Catherine Hepburn in yeah. the 60s, I think. Tom Hanks did it in the 90s as well. Yeah, sorry, I meant sorry. Yeah, of yeah, course, yeah. yeah. I think it was Catherine Hepburn was yeah. the last person to do that. Yeah. I'd be surprised if Kate Blanchett done it again, as much as she does deserve it. Yeah. Um, Rooney Mara's a shoe in, I think, for supporting she's actress. Mm-hmm. Um, she's great, but I would love Sosha Ronan to win yeah. the to Oscar for that I think it's an absolutely immaculate performance from start to finish yeah, I, I watched Hannah again recently for the first time yeah. in a long time and just an astonishing screen presence ah, you know you just can't take your eyes off her yeah and so many so many other people would have come into that role and it would have been there wouldn't have been you know much behind because there's not much for her to do really yeah. but she just pulls it off so like you're so invested in her character from start to finish um, apart from that I think um, again another female led was Sicario enjoyed Sicario immensely the more I thought about it the more I disliked it but <laughs> um, but just the fact that it had a kind of strong female yeah. lead my problem with it was that it had a strong female lead and the more I thought about it the more I thought the female lead actually became weaker every time I thought about it Yeah. Um, they'd set her up to be this they, they could have set her up to be way stronger than what she was yeah, um, yeah. but they kind of registered to an emotional wreck to be supported by the male characters yeah. around about her but there was the music in it is absolutely astonishing it's one of my favourite scores of the year yeah, okay. um, the music I still listen to the music same way like Under the Skin from last year or yeah. the year before maybe no last year was last year, year yeah. um, was yeah. I wasn't great I didn't love the film I thought there was elements of it that was great it was one of my favourite endings to any film but the score I keep going back to Sicario was the same yeah. um, and there was elements of Sicario that was great it was good to see Benicio Del Toro yeah, in yeah. a fantastic role again. Yeah, I, I, absolutely well, right. Yeah, yeah it shares like a couple of cast members in Herod Vice because Josh Brolin and Benicio del Toro are both in Sicario as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but my yeah, favourite film I would like to mention is Ex Machina. Yes, yeah. see, and just as you know, you were saying uh, how Carol seems to be almost, uh, if not two head of you know, there's not many many people here. There was basically, well, basically three. Um, and he, I just absolutely got bought into the world. The only thing that slightly pulled me out of that was it all happened over such a short space of time. But if you let that go, it's amazing uh, film and great performances as well. And one of my favourite sequences of the year, which was Oscar Isaac disco dancing, uh, just out of nowhere. 
is right. tremendous. Um, absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm wary of the time. We've been going for Ian. Give us a time check. One hour forty-one fifty-two. <laughs> and of course, you guys have to go and see Twilight Sad tonight. And Ian and I have to go to the pub. Um, <laughs> a, so there's just a couple of other things I want to mention um, before we wrap up. We've never really looked at, looked at theatre before, but this year I saw two things very close to one another that were Scottish-based and Scottish books. One was David Gregg's adaptation of Lanark, which, you know, shouldn't, four hours long, but theatre should not work. Not for me, anyway, but it really did. Uh, it was an incredible adaptation, and, and for someone to take Alistair Gray's Lanark and make it work on stage was almost unbelievable, but he did that. I'm so glad you brought that up, because I was actually going to try and shoehorn that in at the end, because it was astonishing. Yeah. I didn't expect it to be that great. And that's actually, going back to the books, that's why I didn't, I've not read as much, because I reread Lanark. <laughs> it took me like three <laughs> Nothing months. Nothing wrong with that, yeah. yeah. Um, but that was an astonishing piece of theatre. As you said, it was, what, three hours, 50 minutes, yeah. I think, the running time. And it felt like just over two hours. Yeah. Um, I was like this every single time I thought about it got on the way to going to see it I was like this is not going to work this can't work on stage no, I was exactly the same <laughs> in fact I was waiting for it to, to be disappointed by it and it didn't disappoint in the slightest and lovely tricks like looking through Alistair Gray's glasses yeah, you know yeah. and see uh, it was if they put it on again then I, you must go and see it it was incredible and the other one was the adaptation of this Alan Warner's The Sopranos Our Ladies of Perpetual Sucker which I saw at the Tron, it was the National Theatre of Scotland, and a, a a great performance. The six girls, I think there's six, I hope, um, play every character in it, and um, it was just a, a fantastic feel-good bit of theatre. There was live music going on there, the ELO tracks everywhere, which, you know, you forget your favourite ELO track didn't play. But, um, yeah, that, that was a, another kind of highlight, and uh, it was great. Good year for Scottish theatre. Um, and then just to finish off we, you know, we did quite a few podcasts this year but we did our first live outside broadcast one at, right. at Lanark that, yeah, was, a, that was a cracking day eh? oh, it was good yeah. it yeah, was yeah. live at New Lanark small music festival the first time that they did put it together I mean, and it really was a small music festival but mm. they had that 12 different bands on and we managed to yeah, hear nice. most of them and interview few, most of them yeah. and uh, well, hopefully we can do some more of that yeah stuff. I'd like to do that again again soon probably yeah but um, I think unless anyone has anything urgent they want to raise before uh, we no I can see everyone's itching no, to get it on um, Wesley thanks so much for doing this thanks I really appreciate it okay. Chris always a pleasure likewise let's not you. leave it so long until <laughs> next yeah, year yeah, and uh, Ian always thanks to you and uh, have a great Christmas and New Year everyone and we'll be back in the New Year with people that are completely different cheers mm.